Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Presented by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live, today we are talking with Maya, better known as the artist MXM Tune. You may know Maya from the two EPs she released in 2020, both of which got fantastic reviews. One called Dawn was described as a bold collection of dream pop ballads, and the other called Dusk was described as the perfect companion for anyone reminiscing over the past year with all of its trials and tribulations. And if you have a chance, check out Maya at Lollapalooza on Sunday, August 1st. One of the topics that Maya has taken on in her music is her mental health. Now on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And one of the common experiences that many people have is that they struggle with both anxiety and depression. So what Maya describes is feeling anxious her whole life. This anxiety particularly manifested in panic attacks. And that panic became really intense in certain situations, such as when she was on a plane. Maya also explained how she suffered from seasonal affective disorder, in which she would regularly experience depressive symptoms as winter approached and until spring came. And Maya explained how her depression became even more intense during the pandemic. Maya talks about the various coping strategies she utilizes, including medication, exercise, meditation, and therapy. And one of the things that we particularly talk about is how we can challenge the stigma of mental illness within ourselves. She talks about how she learned to show herself basic compassion and kindness. And it doesn't mean being overly positive, per se. Sometimes our quest to be very positive when we are struggling can be too difficult. Maya talks about moving away from being negative and self-critical to simply being neutral and fair to ourselves. So let's go there and listen to what Maya has to say. So Maya, welcome to Going There. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Mike. <laughs> so thanks for being on. And let's let's get right into it, talking about something that you and I discussed right beforehand, which is depression and particularly how for a lot of people, depression has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've had my fair share of depressive moments, I think, in my life and up until 2020, I really, I think I was very lucky to avoid a lot of the darker experiences. I know a lot of my family has been um, experienced in their life and then really getting like full on diagnosis of depressive disorder in 2020 at the start of the pandemic and trying to navigate that and really figuring out, okay, like how do I take care of myself when we're having this unprecedented event like happen around us? And um, how do I understand better what my brain needs in this moment when we're not really able to do that. <laughs> now, do you mind me asking, d depression can manifest in so many different ways for different people. And I'm just kind of curious for you what the symptoms are and what it feels like for you. 
I would say my own experience with depression has really largely been around this like lack of motivation and kind of this numbness I think that comes with feeling gray and it it feels kind of like you I don't know I think in a lot of ways depression manifests in ways that we kind of view as things as being like lazy and so it was hard for me to even recognize that that was what I was feeling for a really long time and um yeah, I don't know. And the days when it gets really bad, I just kind of want to lie in bed and things feel like they pass really fast around me, even though I'm not even doing anything. And um, it just feels kind of overwhelming. Like things just feel like a little too much for me at any given moment. So that's my own my own experience. You know, it's interesting what you're describing about things happening around you, because one of the ways that in general mental health issues can manifest is in our own sense of our personal speed in comparison to the speed of people around us. Mm. So for example, with depression, as you're describing, it feels like all of a sudden we're just so much slower than everyone. Mm -hmm. Whereas with something like anxiety and panic, there's almost this feeling like, okay, we're just going so much quicker than everyone. But once you recognize the fact that your pace feels different than the world around you, a lot of people just want to retreat at that point, because mm -hmm. it's like, this isn't me mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah. I mean, and I've actually experienced anxiety a lot more in my life. Like I had anxiety from the age of six, I was having panic attacks and I had no idea what that was. And um, so the faster pace was something that I was a lot more familiar with and trying to navigate and deal with growing up. And when depression came knocking on my door and slowed me down in a way that I never experienced before, it was really different. And it was difficult because I think exactly to what you're saying, this the mental health stigma and the reason we don't talk to people about the things that we're going through is just because we don't want to be different than the people around us and when we're pa our paces are moving at a different speed it's so scary to try and explain that to somebody who might not get that in the immediate understanding of what you're talking about or you know eventually you do find people that do um and that's that's a nice moment but it's hard for sure <laughs> yeah and it's it's often almost on a razor's edge in some ways because one of the things you know, the stigma of mental health can kind of uh, express itself in different ways. One of the ways is that people feel very much other. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're not normal. You know, let's, let's not even talk about the negative connotations of it yet. But just like the idea like you're not normal, you're different from other people. Yeah. But then one of the things that can also happen is that people can kind of almost minimize it by saying like, oh, you're just feeling a little bit nervous. Like, oh, you're just a little bit down. And then you're kind of like, okay, no, you don't get it. This isn't mm -hmm. that. And so in some ways, one of the things that's very difficult about someone when they struggle with their mental health is that what they need at that moment is, is very, very specific. Like you mm -hmm. kind of need someone who can recognize that this is a different state, but that doesn't mean you're like an abnormal person. And it's very hard to find people who can who can get it like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, my whole family has dealt with some form of mental illness within their lives, but everybody's situation and everybody's relationship to these facets of mental health is also so different in the way that we cope and understand them. And so, like, I know with my own experience with depression, it was very different than my brother's experience with depression or my mother's experience with depression. And so everybody kind of has this like 
level zero of understanding when it comes into like caring for other people. And that can be such a hard hurdle to overcome, but it really helps us understand and broaden our horizons and perspectives of what it means to be depressed. And it sounds so inspirational and accident, but like depression, it really, it changes person to person. I don't think that there's one way that it actually looks. And so, yeah, I mean, finding people that understand it is really hard, but I think if people are just willing to give it a second and be like, okay, maybe it's not just being sad, like give it a moment of just thinking about it a little bit deeper um, because it's really hard and I wish more people could understand it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you've described publicly before that I think people really don't understand. And again, this is a situation where they sort of understand Mm -hmm. it in concept, but they don't really get it is the seasonal Mm -hmm. aspect of depression for people who feel who have some version of seasonal affective disorder, how all of a sudden when it's a certain time of year, everything just plummets. And if if you're comfortable talking about that, maybe maybe kind of just explaining like what that is to people, especially people who aren't familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, so if you don't know seasonal affective disorder, which is quite literally sad, which I think is hilarious in some dark way, It basically just makes it really hard when it's winter and the sun only is out for like seven hours a day. Like, I don't understand what's up with that. Like summer is crazy. Why do we have so much sun? Just give winter a little bit extra. Um, But it basically just makes it like really hard for you to have a positive mood just because you're not exposing yourself to the sun very often. You're staying inside. The The weather's colder and it's pretty common for a lot of people to even unknowingly experience seasonal affective disorder. Um, And that was something that I, for a long time, didn't understand what was going on. I was like, why do I feel so bummed out all the time? Like, I want to look forward to the season, but I just can't every single time. It just makes me feel horrible. And I ended up talking to my doctor about it. And she was like, that sounds like seasonal affective disorder. And it's pretty common. People just don't know it. And um, when I found that out, I I wrote a song about it because I was like, this is something that I think more people should be aware of because I didn't know. And when I got to define a feeling and understand it a little bit more, that changed my perspective on everything. Yeah. And one of the things that you were talking about with panic and now even seasonal affective disorder is that, you know, for a lot of people, when anxiety or depression is not that intense, mm-hmm. it doesn't, for lack of a better way of saying it, leave a mark. It doesn't have a tail to it. It's like, you know, you drift in it. It's not great, but it's not so bad. You drift out of it. Mm -hmm. But when you know that you are capable of having something like panic, the the intense terror, you know, I'm going to die. I'm I'm having, you know, a heart attack or something like seasonal affective disorder, which is like, I'm about to be hit by a bus, the same bus that I've been getting hit by Mm. every year. It changes how people think of themselves the rest of the time. And, you know, how they think about their life and and their plans. And I'm just kind of curious for you how that's manifested. Absolutely. I think that was something I thought a lot about, like knowing that, you know, three months out of the year, I'm going to be functioning at like a 40% capacity and like effective rate or whatever. And having to expect that every single year and not knowing how to explain that to people around me was really frustrating because I was like, I know that I'm not going to be in the right mental space later on in this year, but I don't know why. I just know that that's going to happen and people around me are going to be confused because if I just explain to them that I'm feeling sad, they're going to say, well, why don't you just do something that makes you happy? And that's not as easy as I wish it was. It's I, I wish things were as simple as that, but it's a little more complicated. And um, yeah, I mean, even having experiences of... <clears throat> excuse me, panic, like 
it was really hard, like being a little kid too, and experiencing those moments and not understanding why I felt so like concerned about my well-being. I didn't I know, didn't know what was going on around me. It felt like I was drowning in air and not having the vocabulary to talk about that when you're a little kid is really hard because you're like, something's wrong with me. And I think in both cases with sad and with panic, like you just feel like something's deeply missing in your person and being and that's not the case but it's really hard it's really hard to grow up with all of those things and not have an explanation mm -hmm. and one of the things that you know when people talk about the concept of privilege you know which i've talked with other people on this podcast before is one of the fundamental aspects of privilege is the is the basic idea that all things going the same you will have good things happen to you, mm. you know, versus all things being equal, you will not have good things happen to you. And one of the issues, you know, if we want to almost call it like kind of like a mental health privilege, if you will, if you, if someone has the, if you want to call it that sort of the privilege of, of not struggling with mental illness is that you can plan for your winter vacation. Yeah. You know, you can say like, oh, great. It's, it's, we're going to have two weeks off in, you know, right around Christmas time, and let's go on a trip and let's do this, you know, and you don't have to really think to yourself, oh, man, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to do that. Yeah. Or with panic, where really planning anything mm -hmm. is very complicated, because you think to yourself, like, I don't know when this is gonna hit, you know, this could be right in the middle of a nice dinner that I'm having with someone and all of a sudden, you know, I pass out or something like that. Yeah, it was so hard. And for a long time, I even had panic attacks that were triggered by airplanes. And like, every single time I would go on an airplane, I would get sick. And I would have these like, nervous fits, these panic attacks, and I didn't understand why. And it made it so hard because my job relies on me being able to go places. And so I had to just kind of get through it. And it was a horrible experience. And I, I managed to overcome it. But it was really hard in the middle of it trying to be like, and it, it's scary too to allow people to understand that that's what's happening to you in a situation like that. Like I remember not wanting to tell people that I was working with because I was like, I don't want them to think I'm not capable of this. Like I don't want them to think that I'm not wanting to do this or wanting to go these places. It's just something that happens to me and it it's so scary when it does, but I don't know how to stop it. So I'm just gonna keep doing this and I'll keep experiencing it over and over. Eventually I got meds and that was really helpful, but um, it's really hard. You just can't plan for anything. And I remember feeling so guilty for having to deal with those things in the presence of my loved ones or my friends or whatever it was, because it feels embarrassing. And I, I hate that I felt so embarrassed by what I was going through, but I didn't have any other word because I just, I just thought that that was going to be my reality for the rest of my life. And, um, I wouldn't want to explain that to people. <laughs> well, you know, it's so interesting the way that stigma of mental illness develops. And I think the airplane or fear of airplanes is such an interesting one because here's a situation where, I mean, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I, maybe I don't understand this, but I don't think from an evolutionary perspective, we're built to fly <laughs> in the air. Like, uh, like objectively speaking, what we are doing is unnatural. Mm -hmm. It's kind of unsafe. I mean, I guess it's <laughs> technically not unsafe. And, and yet here's a situation where if you're afraid of it, it's like, what's your problem? And I think that this is something that happens a lot with the, the, the core of, of you know, the stigma of mental illness is that people have 
a, a point. They have something that is either concerning them or they have something that's bothering them legitimately. And the world just kind of immediately bypasses that part and gets the part of like, you're being distressed is distressing me. Mm. And therefore, I just want you to stop. Mm. And, the, and the planes is, a, is a, such a great example of that because I, I personally, I mean, I don't want people to develop complexes about planes, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm surprised that more people aren't afraid of going into airplanes. Like I'm surprised that I'm not afraid of going into airplanes. Um, and so this is a great example of something where it's like, but shouldn't you be anxious about this? And the fact that you are is somehow, oh, this makes you other. Yeah, absolutely. Planes are so scary. I'm not as terrified as I used to be of them. I think I can rationalize them a little bit more. And um, I haven't done anything bad so far on all my plane rides. So I hope it continues the same way. But yeah, it's really scary. Like I think as an anxious person growing up, a lot of the things that caused me anxiety and made me nervous, I was so confused why other people didn't feel the exact same way. I was like, okay, so maybe I am crazy for just like being stressed out by these small things or um, gosh, like just being anxious by nothing even. Sometimes there's just not even a cause for the feeling that you're experiencing. Um, But yes, like I don't understand why airplanes aren't scarier for people. That's really strange. (laughs) And, you know, it's so interesting because like one of the examples that I'll use for understanding how people conceptualize panic is marathons, Mm. you know, in, in theory, let's take an airplane versus a marathon. Mm. At like the 20th mile of a marathon, everybody is dizzy, sweating, breathing heavy. They're, they're having trouble concentrating. There's, there's thousands, if not millions of people around. You know, they could just pass out right there in front of total strangers. All the things that go into creating a panic attack and creating panic disorder, because you should be terrified of that moment. But in some ways, we've given societally, we've given permission for people to feel all those things. That's actually not only have we given permission for people, but that's part of the joy of it, Mm. you know? And so we say, hey, and so people even think this is like, oh, my God, I I can't breathe. You know, this is the best. And like, you know, I love going across the finish line and I'm completely depleted. And, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen to me after this? I feel like I'm going to die. And yet when it's in another situation where we haven't given permission for it and it's not okay it makes people that much more panicked because just like you said it's like not only am i feeling these things but no one seems to be validating it so now i'm mm-hmm. feeling crazy yeah. and that seems that's why it's so important that we you know someone like yourself comes up and talks about these things because well what if someone who got on an airplane would be like well this is like running a marathon i should feel like this good for me Mm-hmm. for 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 getting on the plane in spite of this. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely like I think we living is such a hard feat for a lot of people and I know within my own experiences there's been days where I'm like am I going to get through this and like trying to get to the other end of it and just trying to feel proud and thankful for the fact that I've carried myself this far in my own timeline and I really think that people should give themselves a pat on the back for getting through things and like Even I live in Brooklyn, New York. I could get run over by a car at any moment because people here don't care about driving. Like, I feel thankful that I still allow myself to go out into the world and get a cup of coffee. Like, there's simple actions that I think need to be seen as a little bit more, like, 
obviously that's a really hard thing to do. Like waking up in the morning is a hard thing to do and being able to allow ourselves to appreciate the fact that we're, we're doing these things in spite of feeling and experiencing depression or panic or whatever it may be in people's life. It's pretty fantastic. Like, I think that's something in the end of this pandemic that we're experiencing. Like I've really tried to just feel appreciative of the fact that I've made it this far. Um, and it's not going to override every feeling, but it helps a little bit. <laughs> you know, and it's so interesting that you say that about the care. And that, that I want to really emphasize that as a more general mindset. Because one of the things that I think as a society, and look, New York City is a great example. I, I love New York City. I lived there for many years. I still live right by it. I love going into it. But one of the things that's problematic about it is that it seems singularly designed to ask the question, how much of your health and well-being are you willing to give up in order to be here? Mm. Whether it's to do your career or to afford the rent or, or just tolerate the, you know, the energy of it, which I personally love, but I, I, I think is stressful in some ways. And it, it leads people to, and this is not just New York City, I think it's in, in a lot of places, it leads people to assume that the mindset that you have to have if you want to make changes is one of like, almost like destroying yourself, pushing yourself, criticizing yourself, shaming yourself. And then like, sort of like, okay, if you finally get to that point, now you're ready to, to do something. And that word they use that caring, it always is going to work better when you come from a caring place. So when you kind of imagine for a workout, instead of saying like, what can I do to, you know, kind of destroy myself in, mm -hmm. in the hopes of, you know, some kind of goal, that idea of like, well, what would a, what would a caring workout feel like? You know, what would a nurturing workout feel like? Mm -hmm. And I think that people will get much farther and get more out of it along the way if they took that approach. Yeah. I mean, my walks that I would take, those were just to make me feel like I was taking care of my soul, like a little bit more. And I would go and get myself like a coffee that I was really looking forward to. And so that felt like it was a, this is a thing that I'm doing for no other purpose other than to, to look out for myself. And I think if we have more actions in our life that are just intentionally trying to, you know, look at ourselves from the perspective of like, okay, even like taking the perspective of like, popping outside of my body for a second. If I take a look at this person, which happens to be myself, what do they need in this moment right now? I needed a walk and a coffee. And if you can kind of evaluate those things and not give yourself such a hard time, I really think that's what it comes down to. Like we're just people and sometimes the nicest person is going to be ourself. And so if we can be that for our own people and, um, personalities and beings like that's just, that'll just make it so much easier we don't need another person being hard <laughs> and and yet one of the things that is so much a, a symptom or yeah. a consequence i would say of, of depression and anxiety is that we are horrible to ourselves yes you know like <laughs> like what one of the things i'll say to people in sessions a lot like someone will say something like you know like themselves like God, I just feel like such a loser. I feel like I haven't mm -hmm. done anything in my life. I'm like, all right, hold on a second. I, I'm not a big believer just as a practitioner or as a human being in, in like the power of positive thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think, I don't think necessarily just being positive for the sake of being positive is necessarily, you know, neither adaptive nor uh, particularly effective in, in one's life. But one of the things I'll say to people is I don't need you to be positive. But but you're, you're you're being an asshole. Like if some <laughs> third person came in and said to you, 
after all that you just described, you know, like you're struggling with depression and you're still making it to work every day and, you know, you missed a day. And now because of that, like you're the biggest loser, I'd be like, look, like, you don't, you don't have to, that third person doesn't have to come in here and say like, oh, you're amazing, whatever. But it's like, don't be an asshole. Like you just listen to someone talk about how they've been struggling to survive and your big like summation of that is that they're a loser. Mm. It's like, no, like leave the room and come back when you can just say something basically supportive, basically kind, basically indicating that you have any investment in humanity or dignity of another person. And it's, it's amazing to me how much when you listen to how people talk to themselves, that all just gets thrown out the window. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like in my own experience with therapy in my last four years of going to sessions, I think one thing that I've really learned as being helpful is I definitely try to be positive in some capacities, but I think obviously like I'm a depressed person. I'm not, I don't have the capability of being positive every single waking moment of my life, but I can be neutral. And I think being allowing myself to take a neutral standpoint when I look at who I am has really allowed me to not be so hurtful and such an asshole to myself when I'm having those low moments where I'm like, okay, like, yeah, I didn't do the wake up at 7am, make myself breakfast, go work out. I woke up at 11am and I ate a bowl of cereal and I haven't eaten until like, you know, 3pm until later. But hey, I did that. I woke up and I did that anyways. And I still went through my day. And that's, that's pretty cool. All right, I'll, I'll live with that. So I think it's been really helpful for me to not feel like I have to be this super positive person that is like an inspiration to the people around her because I'm just a normal, normal individual who has a horrible sleep schedule and like does the things that she can when she can. But I don't need to be a beacon of hope. I can just be a being and I can be neutral about it. (laughs) And that, yeah, and I would definitely encourage anyone who's, you know, who's struggling with these things, that idea of starting with neutral. Mm-hmm. Again, like, you know, most of the people who I know I work with who struggle with depression do not run around yelling at people on the street, <laughs> criticizing, judging people for no reason. Like if something goes wrong, they just like snap at them. Most of the time, they're, they're fairly somewhere between basically polite to kind to even like effusive to the world around them. And yet that's exactly how they treat themselves. Like, oh, like, you know, look at your pants. Like, oh my God. Like, oh, you got a donut again. Like, I can't believe, oh, you're leaving work early. Like, it's like, oh my God. It's like this constant, incessant thing. And, and, and again, like you're saying, asking someone in that situation to be positive is like asking a car from going from like 120 forward to going 120 backwards. Mm-hmm. It's like, don't need that. Slow down and, and, and just pause for a second you know, drive, (laughs) drive under 55, if you want for a little bit. I don't know what really the driving metaphor here is because (laughs) neutral is kind of, you know, I don't know if you want to put your car in neutral, please, please don't do that when you're driving 120, that might (laughs) cause problems. But, but the idea of just slowing down and asking yourself, are you being basically kind? Are you being basically caring? You know, ask yourself, would you talk to anyone else like this? And I think a lot of people, when they hear it that way, they're like, I'd never talk to somebody like that. You know, that would be horrible. It's like, yeah, yeah except for you. <laughs> exactly. Why are we always so hard on ourselves? I think that's something that I've thought a lot about. It's like, we know our own limits. And I think sometimes that leads us to saying things that we would never say to other people because we're like, 
we have such an awareness of our own minds that it allows us to be that much more critical of the things that we're thinking or doing and the actions we're taking. But it's so mean. Like, why do we choose to spend our negative energy on ourselves? Like, I think I, I had this um, session with my therapist one time when she was like, okay, like, this might sound crazy, but can you close your eyes and visualize what your anxiety looks like? And I was like, okay, I didn't expect anything to come out of it. And she was like, what do you see? And I was like, like a little kid that needs to be given a hug or something. She goes, so then why have you been saying all these mean things about yourself when this is the receiving end of what's hearing those voices? And I was like, I have no idea. And I've thought about that. And like, all right, I have to think of my like soul as this like little child that I'm nurturing and trying to take care of and grow up really. I'm not going to be wanting to throw these horrible things that I'm saying to myself at this individual. Like that's never, I would never say that to a little kid. So why am I saying it to myself? And um, yeah, like asking ourselves, like, what do we deserve? We deserve basic kindness and caring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I've always felt, I don't, I don't know objectively if this is true or not, but I think that one of the fundamental misunderstandings that people have about anxiety and depression is that people have negative thoughts first and then they get anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more of what you were talking about where I think that part of the reason why people start to hate themselves is because they understand on a more intricate level and on a more intimate level, like I can't do certain things. Mm -hmm. Like I can't control my mood. You know, other people may not know that about me, so they don't have those negative thoughts about me. But I hate the fact that I can't control my mood. Mm -hmm. I hate the fact that I, I can't control my panic or that I can't control my seasonal affective disorder in the same way that I would, I would hate it if there was anything that I really wanted to do but couldn't do. And it's that that's the beginning, though, of the stigma, because we don't say to ourselves, like you said, look at me. I know how much weight I'm carrying emotionally, and I still did X, Y, or Z. Good for me. Mm -hmm. Or at least like saying like, hey, you did that, yeah. you know? And that's, that's the pivot, you know? You, I know that you've been living with the fear of panic, and you still went to that party. I just want to acknowledge that you did that, you know? No, it's, it's oh, you're at the party, and you're, all you're doing is you're like sitting there, and you're afraid that you're going to panic. It's like you're not even paying attention to your friends. Mm -hmm. It's like... How about like you got a monster over your shoulder and, yeah. and good for you for even being there? Exactly. You know, and that's part of the pivot, I think, of we like we buy into the stigma of mental illness in our own internal dialogue right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it it's really hard. Like we're our own worst critic for a reason, because we know the subject better than any other person is ever going to. And so it's so much easier for us to nitpick the thought process that we're having when we see it right in front of us. And I think it, I mean, I don't know, I'm just a really big believer in trying to apply the kindness that we hopefully give to other people to ourselves. And I'm obviously, I'm never, I'm honestly never always consistent with that with my own self. I'm very hard on, on who I am. And that's, that's just a part of being human. But if I can can try, can try to train my brain into being more empathetic towards myself the way that I hopefully am to other people in my life, like it makes it a little bit easier and it will be hard to constantly remind yourself to do that. But it's the tiny steps that kind of eventually manifest into change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that people are also afraid of, and this is where that super positivity or that like super, you know, almost over, 
overbearing kind of self, I don't know what the term is, like, you know, sort of nurturing yourself that some people are afraid of is because it's almost like, I don't want to be seen as someone who needs that. Yeah. Asking for, you know, like, I don't want to be seen as one of those people, which is again, you know, I don't, I don't know that I think that's fair, but, but again, for the people who can really, you know, nurture themselves, you know, great, keep doing it. But if you're someone who can't, again, meet yourself in that neutral middle, you know, if you don't want to be one of those people who like needs all the positivity and all the nurturing and all the empathy, because you think it's like somehow weakness, it's like, all right, I don't agree with that, but fine, just, but it doesn't make you stronger to do all the negative stuff. Mm. You know, even though you think like this puts you in like a more like almost like this, like stereotypical, like, oh, I'm a tough guy, I can handle all that. It's like, yeah, but there's a lot of things out in the world. You're, you're already handling mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to prove yourself to anybody. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's hard to let people in and allow people to see a weakness, but I don't know if it's a weakness as much as just your real, it's your reality. It's just your experience and the things that you're going through. It doesn't make you weaker because you're dealing with those things. It just is. And I think that that was something that I had to to piece through in my own time was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not like a whole hundred percent being subtracted by like 20% and 20% because of my mental illness experiences. I just am a hundred percent. And these are the things that are added onto my experiences. How can I kind of look at those and deal with them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, and I think I just want to piggyback on that because I think that that's such a dangerous concept. And, and we do that in a lot of different areas of our life where we say to ourselves, well, okay, the depression or the panic means I'm broken Mm. and I have to fix myself and then I'll be quote unquote me. And I agree with you hundred percent because, and this is again at that core of, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. You know, there are certain emotional experiences with depression and, and panic. It does feel like something's broken. Like there's something within us that's just not, working correctly. And it's not to minimize that in any way. But again, like in any activity, there's, there's an acknowledgement, we acknowledge the fact that sometimes like, for example, like an athlete doesn't stop being an athlete, when they break a leg, Mm -hmm. we acknowledge the fact that they are still an athlete, this is part of the the 100% athletic experience. You know, you, you, you don't go into let's say, you know, being, I don't know, whatever athlete figure, you know, whatever sport you are into and say like, well, I'm only an athlete when I have no injuries. Mm. You, you accept the fact that you're coming in with certain things that might be more prone to injury and that you might get injured along the way, but you're still you, this is part of the whole process. And that's why I think what you're saying is so important because I just don't think we do that with, with mental health. Not at all. I think like we have a lot of rhetoric surrounding mental health and mental illness specifically as being these detractors from our experiences and lives. But I don't know another life outside of the things that I've had to experience with depression and panic and anxiety and like all these things like that is just a part of my experience. And I think for a long time, I was very bitter about that. I was very angry at the fact that I had to live a life with those things present and that I felt like I was cheated out of like a normal experience and a normal reality. Um, like a lot of things are taken away from me, but I just had to look at it like, okay, this is my life. And those are the things that I've experienced so far. How has that contributed to where I am now? And what can I do going forward to make those things not feel like they're taking up too much space? Like 
and that's a really hard and so it's a lifelong thing that we're gonna have to deal with when we're dealing with mental health and um depression or panic but i think i i just really don't want to be broken and so if i can change my thinking over feeling like that's not a reality in my life like it's kind of like i don't know i'm i'm biracial so i'm mixed with chinese and white i'm not i'm no less of a my chinese heritage isn't less because i'm mixed race like i'm i just am that i'm i am a hundred percent of the 50% of my identities all the time. And so with anxiety or with depression, those things are just a part of me. And it doesn't make me any less of a person. That's just a part of who I am. And if I can kind of handle them and deal with them as they come in waves in my life, like I'm doing the most that I can as well. So I don't know, not to scare people who are dealing with these things as like, they never go away, but truly like think of them as just like, things that are along for the ride and you can kind of figure out ways to manage them along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'll even take it a step further. And I, I really like that. I'm always, what'd you say? I was always a hundred percent, 50% yes. Chinese <laughs> like that. I, I think that that's such a, it's such a good way. Honestly, it's going to take me a little bit to like wrap my head around <laughs> no that problem. because I think that there's something in there that's exactly right about. And I think not how we think about, things you know it's that that need to kind of like somehow again just in general if they're like if, if you're not a hundred percent okay you're broken mm. you know if you're not a hundred percent one way then you're completely not it's that all or none thinking that is is so dangerous and one thing i'll just say though to people is that look i don't want anybody to suffer to develop other potentially positive qualities. Yeah. But one one thing that I do want to say to people who struggle in, in, in any of these ways is that there is a world out there that you understand better than people who do not struggle. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to develop that empathy, that kindness, that compassion, if you've never dealt with any of it. And again, I, I don't wish mental illness on anybody for the purposes of, of being that that person. But if you are somebody who struggles to recognize that there's a lot of people out there who, not that you're obligated to, to go out and, you know, but, but people, people need you, you know what I mean? Because you have something that other people don't, because when you're talking to someone about depression, who has no real understanding of depression, it doesn't work as well. Whereas if you're talking with someone who on an intimate level gets it, it matters. And, and it, it makes, it can make their life a lot different, which is why somebody like yourself stepping up and talking about this, it's like, okay, there's someone out there who's going to be like, I, I don't know that anyone's explained it to me like that before. And it, it's so it's, it's, so the people are out there, there, there's a value there. It's not just about being broken. I mean, it's not broken at all. I have to take that out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Absolutely. I think the more conversations that are kickstarted where people can kind of begin to understand what's happening inside of their own brains, because it's such an insular experience is something that I think unless we realize that there is a possibility for change or a possibility that somebody else will get it, we oftentimes don't seek the help that we might need in the process of dealing with something like I didn't think that depression was something that was a reality in my life until I understood it from my brother's perspective of what his experience had been. And that was when I felt incentivized to think about, okay, maybe I need to get help too, to try and figure out what's going on with me because I didn't feel crazy for the first time in a really long time. And so, I mean, to anybody who's out there, like who is 
cautious about talking about their experiences, do what you feel comfortable with, but know that the value and the insight that you have with your own life can carry over to other people and helping them understand what they're going through as well. Yeah. I, th- I think we got to end on that. That was, that was <laughs> awesome. Thank well, you so much. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great talking with you. I learned a lot. I'm sure people listening are going to, are going to take away a lot. So and best of luck with with your already fantastic career. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So there it is. Maya talking about her struggle with panic and anxiety throughout her life, and more recently, her struggle with depression, particularly seasonal depression. There's so much to take away from the discussion with Maya. But one of the most important takeaways was something she said toward the end of our discussion when she was talking about her racial identity. Maya describes herself as being mixed race, half Chinese, and half white. She then said that she is 100% of the 50% of her identities all of the time. This is such a powerful statement on how we think about identity in general, and it can definitely be applied to our struggles with mental illness. Even if we feel that we struggle with mental illness such as anxiety and depression part or even most of the time, that doesn't mean that we are not ourselves during that time. Mental illness is part of who we are and how we understand our lives. And if we can accept that idea as Maya explained it, it will help us not feel like our life is on hold or that we lose our identity when we struggle with our mental health issues. We may feel broken, but we are not broken. We are still us, living our lives the best way we can at any given time. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project, and thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction, and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. And if you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound websites for more information. So be healthy. Be safe and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads. As we progress through this season of Going There, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website, wherever you'll find these episodes, you'll also find a short questionnaire. We'd love to hear your feedback. Any questions that have sparked from our conversations with these incredible artists, or if you have any topics that you'd love to see addressed. We plan to incorporate these responses into episodes as well as a new weekly column, Ask Dr. Mike, which we'll publish on Consequence starting next week. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so that they can go there with us. 